Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on September 29th, 2013. Today's message is titled, Five Truths About Jesus, by Pastor Frank Berto, and is based on scripture, John, chapter 14, verses 5 to 12. It is really good to be here. My name is Frank Berto. I served for many years at the church that used to be down the road, Bethany Baptist, and then for many years after we moved out into East Richmond. Currently, I'm serving a church, uh, Port Kells Christian Congregational Church. If you're driving Highway 1 east past Langley and you come around, you know that bend where Charlie's Tree is? Uh, we're just in that little nook there. It's called, uh, that area of Surrey is called Port Kells. I've uh, had the pleasure of knowing this church fairly well over the years. I see Bill and Eileen here. Uh, we were also, uh, the Hemmerlings were very kind to us. Many years ago, my wife's mother was killed in a car accident when we were pregnant with our first child. And Ruth came alongside us as a spare mom to my wife and just helped her through that time. Ruth, as you all know, was a woman of grace and kindness, and we were very fortunate to be on the receiving end of that. Also for many years, my wife worked with Greg and a number of you, and I'm, I'm delighted to hear about this youth work here at J.O. that's grown out here. But this church, uh, another one called Pilgrim and Emmanuel and Bethany, cooperated for probably 10 or more years on a youth outreach on Fraser Street called Street Level. Uh, Greg was there, quite a number of you, and that was crucial. It was really a, a wonderful way of saying, hey, we recognize that uh, teens aren't walking into the front door of the church off the street, so let's go out onto the street and meet them. And it really made a huge difference in many people's lives and actually changed the nature of the churches that participated in it. So be open for that again. I'm always struck when we talk about Jesus that the men who followed him were probably around the age of those senior high school and just out of it. Kids. Those kids, those young men and women, became world changers. Jesus himself, 27 years old, carpenter, when he came into the full flower of his public ministry. Sometimes I think we forget the power of young men and women and the Holy Spirit to change this world. That's what Jesus does. Amen? Jesus was half my age when he started this. 27 and 27 is? Yes, indeed. Let me pray for you. Uh, Father, it's such a delight, and it's your purpose that we would meet each week around the globe in these gatherings of your children to bear witness together to the life, death, and resurrection of your Son and the way that you've rescued this world from its brokenness through him. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you that you've left as a deposit guaranteeing your return in our eternal life, the Holy Spirit, in my brothers and sisters. Would you please fill us and continue to fill us with it as we've sung the great truths about you, as we listen now and read uh, from the word that you've given us. Touch us. You know we're distracted in a million ways thinking about what we're going to do afterwards, about mortgages to pay, about homework to do. Grab our attention. 
Make us aware of your with us and your walking with us in every single moment of life. We thank you. We love you, God, in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you gave me one chance to speak, this is the message I would give you. If you know Jesus, you know God. If you know the personality of Jesus, you know God. There's this fantastic mystery that's just hard to grasp that 2,000 years ago, 8,000 miles away, a child came into this world, born into a carpenter's family. Fully a human being, raised up with uh, Joseph and Mary, probably learning from under 10 years of age with his father what it meant to be a carpenter, a working man. And yet that man was actually God incarnate. The, the, the creator of the world was fully a human being, fully a teenager, fully a young man, fully a man. It's, it's a mystery beyond explaining that he who spoke universe into being, you know, millions of light years of distance, unfathomable size, came and dwelt amongst us as a human being. He who spoke the North Shore Mountains into being, and the Fraser River, and you and me, became one of us. And that if we see who his personality is revealed through his humanity, we actually know who God is. And I love that scripture we read already when Philip asked him this question. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Jesus, this 27 or 28-year-old man, talking to his earnest young disciples, his just post-high school young men, saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. And I want to dwell on that, because who you think God is in his personality, in what comes out from him, will affect how you walk and live your Christian life. And I think for most of that's us, that's a bit of a battle because we all have fathers, none of whom are perfect, and that affects how we believe and who we believe God is. And the truth is, if you believe God is an angry man in the sky holding the bar incredibly high, that if you don't measure up to it, he's going to smack you down, you'll live in a certain way. You may be a very moral person, but you may live frightened and scared and not the most able vessel to pour out love. If you believe that our Heavenly Father, as we see in Jesus Christ, is full of grace and truth and is the only place sinners can go and actually welcomes broken people in their complete messed up state, if we allow that level of grace to wash over us, it will change us. And it will change the message we give to our neighbors, our children, and our friends. Amen? So I want to go through today just four little aspects of who Jesus is, revealing the Father, and then take a fifth point and say, so where does that take us? 
So five truths about Jesus today. And if you see me do this uh, flow and it doesn't, okay, there we go. And the first truth is this. Jesus loves. Jesus was in Judea, the area around Jerusalem, and he'd just come from this amazing scene of blessing the little children. You all know that, that scene where parents, they're just drawn to Jesus. He's this warm, magnetic rabbi who just oozes love and acceptance. And so they're bringing their children to him to lay his hands on them and bless him. And the disciples are thinking, no, 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 you're getting in the way of God's agenda. And they're shooing the little children away. And Jesus gets angry with his disciples and says, you simply don't understand what I'm up to. And then it says in Mark's gospel that he takes the children in his arms, puts his hands around the children and blesses them. So just after this scene, we pick up this in the Bible. Go ahead, Florence. As Jesus started on his way, the PowerPoint stalled. (laughs) A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And then in Mark's gospel it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Other translations have it this way. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. Uh, The CEV says this, Jesus looked closely at the man. He liked him. He liked him. The Greek for that word love in that case and occasion actually means Jesus did something demonstrable. This guy came up to him. It means Jesus probably put his arms on him, put his hands around him, actually showed an affectionate response to this man. Now, you probably remember the rest of the story. As they have this conversation, Jesus puts his finger on the single thing that's holding this guy back. He's rich. And the money is the big deal in his life and how he spends it and what he does. And Jesus knows the things that hold him back, that bind him up. And actually, having too much money can be a binding thing to us. The stuff we own can own us and become the master in our lives. And so Jesus said, you know, later on, sell all your money and come follow me. And he was unable to. So at that time, this man who runs up to Jesus, a sinner as we'd call him, who was not going to follow him, what does Jesus do to him? It says he reaches out, he puts his hand on him, he likes him. A sinner, not a holy follower, not a regular church-going tither, just an ordinary man. Jesus liked him. Jesus liked him. I think we often have the idea, and I certainly do, that God's response to us is he puts up with us. You know, all these sinners, you know, I guess I'll have to clean them up. You know, they've made a mess of it and, ugh, spilled milk everywhere. The toy's all over the place. I'm just going to have to. And there's a, we, I think we can get this exasperated sense of how God views us, that we're, we're just a mess and he's going to fix it up. And he tolerates us. And his job is just to fix these broken people so they're acceptable for love. And I think this situation rocks us because it says he looked at him and he liked him in his brokenness and his fallenness. 
You know, Jesus looks at the people going up and down Fraser and Maine and on the downtown east side, and you and me, in our broken, rebellious state, and he likes us. This is love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't just his obligation. It was his affectionate love for us. God likes broken human beings. He likes them so much, he wants to transform them. He wants to set them free from the sin that diminishes and kills them. This is who God is, and I know I've walked long enough, and I experienced that the day I came to faith, that affectionate love, but I think we often fight a battle with our own brokenness, thinking, oh, God's just irritated and frustrated and angry at me. And no, he looks down on us with a tender affection. Think how you feel when you see your best friend. Actually, uh, I saw Greg Tobert this morning, and like many of you, I have had a, a professional relationship with Greg as doctor. But I've known him for years in the living room of our house, working with street level, and I just like Greg. And when I see Greg, I smile and want to break out in a smile, want to shake his hand or give him a man punch on the shoulder. Sometimes that's what guys do. You know, you're so happy to see your friends, you laugh or you joke, or you get a little giddy when you see your best friend. You realize all true friendship, that bond between man and man or woman and woman, that, that delight we have in one another, that's a reflection of God the true author of everything good and kind and beautiful. God, the true author of friendship, feels that way about broken human beings. He likes us. He likes us. Allow that to wash over you. That's such a great place to start from. We don't start from God owing us salvation or having to earn it or having to put so many good deeds into the basket that God smiles on us. No, we start from the place of grace where God looks down on broken people and likes them and invites them to fall into his arms, to surrender to the God who has deep affection for you. Amen? All true friendship comes from the God who loves us. So truth number one, I think I'll count on you, Flo. Better not, eh? <laughs> well, you see, Jesus comes into a broken world and allows us with grace to slowly move on one slide at a time. The next slide will say Jesus loves, and then we'll go on to Jesus wept. Because Jesus had friends. As he was a human being here, during that time, he fell in love with a family. And you know the family's name. It had uh, Lazarus was the brother, and we know the two sisters, Mary and Martha. And they lived just a stone's throw outside Jerusalem in a city called Bethany. Lazarus got sick, terminally ill. And Jesus waited in Jerusalem to go and visit him. And it says he came to the place where Lazarus had been in the tomb four days later. Four days later is a, the Jewish way of saying dead, dead, dead like a doornail, dead. They had this sort of thought that the spirit would hover around the body for three days. Being four days away is like saying really dead, dead and gone. So Jesus shows up and we have this wonderful scene recorded in the Bible for us. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was, and saw him. She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then the shortest verse in the English Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. I often do funerals, and I often mention this verse, because we know with Christians that they'll live again in the body. We actually know that the moment your spirit leaves the body, you go to be with Jesus Christ. Death is not the end of the story. We even know from this story with Lazarus that just moments later, Jesus was going to call him forth from the tomb. The Bible tells us that at the end of time when God renews all things, when the dwelling of God comes together with the dwelling of men and women, when the new heaven and new earth come into place, we will be resurrected with bodies that are imperishable. Tears will be wiped away. But at the graveside, of his friend Lazarus, with Lazarus' sisters and family there and his friends. Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps. He doesn't say, there, there, you know, it's all going to be better. Trust me, at the end of time, uh, he'll come back. He, 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 will, he will live again. He weeps. He enters our sorrows. And I think this is important for us to know. Jesus doesn't push us out of our sorrows or just comfort us in our sorrows. Jesus enters into, God enters into the tragedy of broken humanity, of the sorrow we experience at the funerals of beloved people. When you're weeping for your mother or father or your good friend who's passed on, Jesus is not saying it's there, there, it's all going to be better, don't cry. Yes, it will have a glorious end, but he says, I come with you and I weep beside you. I enter into your sorrows. The brokenness of the world touches me. I'm not expecting you to be some sort of spiritual giant who's untouched by the sorrow of this world. Death in this world and the pains of this world are real and they have affected our God. And Jesus wept at the graveside of his friend Lazarus. He wept at the sorrow that sin and brokenness brings. Jesus enters into our sorrows and stands with us. I love the song, and and Grant uh, and the gang led it for us. We are the broken, you are the healer. We're broken, and it's broken down here. And the healer comes alongside with us and sheds tears with us. Psalm 34, 18 says this, He is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many of you know what it's like. You've lost a parent, a friend, a spouse, even a child, and you stood at the graveside. And you know what it's like to have your heart broken and to be crushed in spirit. Jesus stands beside you at those times. Our Lord weeps with us. He enters into our sorrows. Five truths about Jesus that are truths about God. Jesus loves in an embracing way. He likes people. In all their flavors and brokenness, he likes us. And he enters into our sorrows and comes alongside us. Jesus also carries burdens. 
This is my favorite verse. It comes from Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Then Jesus said this, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. I came to Jesus Christ because I had addiction problems. If you want to know a heavy burden, addiction of any sorts is perfect. Because not only do you not have the power to free yourself from it, you make resolutions over and over again, I'm going to quit. I know this is ruining my life, my friends, everything around me. And then you grit your teeth and you try and you stop for a day, a week, and then you go back to it and you ruin it again and you just feel worse and the burden cycle goes on. And when I came to faith, it was as though Jesus Christ lifted off an unbearable burden of the life I couldn't manage myself and set it aside. But you know, I need to tell you, brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus Christ, I think we often place new burdens on ourselves, don't we? And they kind of go along the lines of how we think God thinks about us. You know, I've got to measure up. I, I, I haven't done well enough today. God's a little bit angry with me, and I haven't done enough good today. Or I, I yelled at my wife, and, and we, we place new burdens on ourselves. Or the devil does. The devil does. And I think this one is subtle. Because the devil likes to just make you feel bad in general. There's a lovely verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that goes this way. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, that means you turn from your stuff, and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Let me unpack that a bit for you. Godly sorrow, in other words, uh, when God puts his finger on it and says, you know, Frank, you yelled at your daughter about watching too much TV when she should be doing her homework, and she'd actually finished her homework, and you didn't bother to check with her. <laughs> So, godly sorrow leads to repentance, which means God clearly puts his finger on what you've done wrong. He says, Frank, you got un inappropriately mad with your daughter. I want you to go apologize to her. So, when God convicts you of something, when God puts godly sorrow on you, it's clear and precise, and you know exactly what to do. And it doesn't come with, oh, you hopeless schmuck. I hate you, and you've just messed up once again, and if you don't do this, you're just, you're horrible. You're, you're an ink blot on the carpet of life. He doesn't say that. God says, clearly, this is what you've done wrong. That's conviction. And, and he leads to repentance. You change in behavior. Zoe, please forgive me. Yes, I overassumed uh, things and, and lost my temper again. Would you forgive me? And it leaves no regret. So when God puts his finger on something in your life, it's an easy burden to carry, isn't it? Because it's very clear. This is what you've done wrong. It doesn't come with eternal condemnation. It comes, you've done this wrong. Here's the action that I'd like you to take, and you're clean. Not only that, but I'll, by my spirit dwelling in you, I'll give you the power to apologize. And you'll actually experience a new level of love and forgiveness. When the devil works on you, he says, Frank, you're a terrible dad. You're a failure. You're a mess. There's no hope for you. Your daughter's, you've ruined her life. And the devil throws this blanket of guilt and shame over you. Or sometimes 
He doesn't even, it's not even attached to a particular object. The devil just likes to make people feel bad. He likes to put on this burden on you and somehow attach it to God. God doesn't really like you because you're not a very good Christian. You're not a very good Christian. I see a spiritual director. And that's a fancy word for a very godly man who spent a lot of time in the scriptures and with Jesus, and he helps you understand the love of God. He just helps you pay attention to the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life. And after my first session with him, this is the question he left me with. He said, Frank, who's the God you're responding to? Go think about this for a week and come back and and tell me who it is. And I pondered it for a week, and I said, well, uh, Stephen, there's three gods, three gods I'm responding to. And the first one is the try-harder God. And it's, uh, you know, Frank, you're doing not too bad, but you really, you need to re- read your Bible more, and you really, you know, you got to sharpen up that control of your temper, and you really, you know, come on, the bar's is high, get on with it. And it's kind of like an angry coach, a guy who hasn't worked out his anger issues, and he's yelling at you on the basketball court. That's the first God, the try-harder God. The second one, and related to him, is the God whose hand is raised high, ready to smack you down. That's the angry dad God who's just, going to blow up any moment, and boom, you're going to come down. And I I said to him, if that was was who God was, those two there, in the shape I was, the Alex Fraser is my way out, because I'm going over the edge, because I couldn't live if that truly was who God was, the unpleasable God, the try-harder, or the angry God. But I said, underneath that all, when I really sit down and pay attention, as deep and wide a foundation as the airport runways are at Vancouver, you know, six feet deep, two miles long, this incredible firm foundation. But not very noisy is the true voice of God that says, Welcome, son. I love you. Come to me, you who are weary and burdened. The still small voice Elijah heard in the cave, God speaks quietly. And if you listen underneath all the noise out there, This is who God is. You can actually try harder and do better if you're motivated by this infinite acceptance and love of God that says, hello, son, hello, daughter, I know you by name and you are mine. Because you can motivate people by guilt. And we pastors sometimes specialize in it. And we have to be careful, because honestly, you want the energy for people living life to be that God likes you, that he's with you, that his spirit, as you yield to him, wants to flow out through you, like streams of living water, nourishing those around you. I know Christians are often struggle with the guilt with God, because, you know, the pastor thing is to ask people, how are you doing with God? And I get two or three regular responses. Number one is, well, I'm not reading my Bible enough. <laughs> number two is, oh, I should pray some more. Sometimes number three is, oh, I should do more in the church. And it's interesting to me sometimes that the first responses, and maybe it's just because the pastor's asking you, but the first responses people give to how are you doing with God is some sort of statement of inadequacy and failure. And I challenge you, and I look at myself in the mirror and challenge myself, Daily we start from a place of failure. But that's where God meets us. He he loves failures. He loves broken people. He takes people on a journey of grace. 
And it's that love and forgiveness and starting out being beloved sinners, redeemed by the death and resurrection, that is the true energy of life. Amen? You guys know it when you bump into someone who's filled with it. And I'll go back to Ruth Hemmerling, because we bumped into it with Ruth when my wife's mother was dead. Because taking little Zoe over there to Ruth, mother and grandmother energy just bubbled out of Ruth. It's the kind of love God has. That's what he does when he touches people's hearts. Five truths about Jesus. Jesus loves. That's the place it starts off. He has an affectionate love for you no matter what stage you're in at life. He weeps with us. He enters into the sorrows of our life. doesn't just say, there, there, it's going to be better. He comes alongside and grieves with us. Third, he carries our burdens. The burdens he gives us in life are bearable ones. And by his Holy Spirit, he gives us the strength to carry them. Fourth, Jesus forgives. And Jesus forgives in ways beyond our imaginings. You probably are familiar with the story and may have seen it in the film, The Passion. But Jesus, before he was killed on the cross, endured nearly a day's worth of torture and scorn and humiliation, beaten nearly to death, and then crucified. And this scene is recorded for us. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals also were crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. He's on the cross between murderers or insurrectionists or people in some ways truly deserving of a death sentence. He's been bullied and humiliated by these men sitting at the foot of the cross for the better part of a day. Completely innocent. You know what it's like to be accused of something when you're completely innocent and when you haven't done it. But here he is, the Son of God, the one true innocent in the world, beaten nearly to death, humiliated by professional bullies, professional killers. And they're now at the foot of the cross, so little concerned about human suffering that they're wondering, what do I get out of this crucifixion? And we often even pretty that scene up by putting clothes on Jesus, but he's crucified naked. Well, people are concerned about what clothes they get at this. And you and I in that situation, we know what we would have done. We would have called down curses or destruction. If we had the power on them, we would have called down death on those men at the foot of the cross. We would have put it all to an end. And from the cross, in life-sapping agony, Jesus calls down not curses, but blessings and forgiveness on the callous man at the foot of the cross. He had the power to vaporize them. And he called down blessing and forgiveness. 
As a matter of fact, this was so impressive. Luke and Mark both record statements of the professional executioners at the foot of the cross. When Jesus gave his cry and gave up his spirit, the centurion said, Surely this was a righteous man. Surely this was the Son of God. Because he did something so striking, so remarkable, so unusual, so unfallen human as to call down forgiveness and blessing on those executing him. You know, I cross the Alex Fraser, and if you go anywhere in the lower mainland, you know how it's supposed to be one car, one car, one car. You kind of let, there's, a, there's supposed to be a nice order. And when that one guy shoots up beside you and cuts in, you know, oh my goodness, if I had Jesus' power, the roof would fly off his car. His coffee would spill in his lap. I don't know what would happen. Not necessarily forgiveness and grace and warmth. You know, I, I, I'm not that way. But here's Jesus calling down blessing on torturers and callous killers. How much more can he call down forgiveness on you and I? He was asked, how often in a day should I forgive my brother? Seven times, and you know, that was like, can you believe it? Should I, for seven times a day? And Jesus says, not seven times, it's 70 times seven, which is basically saying, always, forever. You ask for forgiveness, you give it. And then he modeled it. At the end of his earthly life here, as it was sapping out of him, Jesus said, this is how you forgive. Forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they are doing. He looks at you this way. There is no sin you can commit on this earth that he will not forgive. And I say that believing that the unforgivable sin could only have been committed in the presence of Jesus Christ on earth when you are attributing his miracles of the Holy Spirit to the devil. But for you and I, there's nothing that our Lord cannot forgive, does not want to forgive, cannot freely pour out that his blood does not cover. Amen? Embrace it. Let it flow over you like warmth and kindness and the embrace of our God, because that's who Jesus is. In the moment his life is ebbing out of him, he calls down blessing and forgiveness, not curses and anger. Five truths about Jesus. He loves like a friend, and he likes you. He enters your sorrows, comes alongside you. The burdens he gives you are light and he carries them with the power of the Spirit and he leads clearly. He doesn't just call you bad. He gives you a light burden that makes you strong and pulls humanity and dignity out of you. And he forgives in ways beyond our imaginings and it's there for the asking, for the taking, day after day after day. And then this. Where else can we go? There's this really kind of amazing scene. If you read the Gospel of John, because many of the miracles are sort of compressed in the first part of his story, and then John dwells on Jesus' teaching and different aspects of his life than the other Gospels. But by the sixth chapter, Jesus has already fed the 5,000 and walked on water. The feeding of the 5,000, I think we miss it. That's actually probably the most startling, biggest miracle that Jesus did in a way. Like we think raising from the dead and walking on the water, those are, those are rocking. Those are just out of this world. 
But the feeding of the 5,000 is recorded in all four Gospels for a reason. It's 5,000 men. Who knows? It could have been between five and 20,000 people. Because in this way, Jesus is like a new Moses. You know, the people of Israel were in the desert, and, and Moses, uh, through God, uh, it, food fell out of the sky for them and fed them for 40 years. So here's Jesus with 10,000 people away from a source of food, actually proving that he's the provider of sustenance. He takes food in his hands, and when God touches things, when God, Jesus lays his hands on things, they're blessed. Blessed means multiply. Food multiplies out of Jesus' hands, and he proves in that moment that he's capable of sustaining a nation. He can provide for us, which explains why they want to take him by force and make him by king. Because they go, yeah, this guy. He doesn't just do individual miracles. He just doesn't raise people from the dead. He can provide for us as a nation. So he's just come from that amazing scene, walked across the lake. But then he sharpens his teaching because he's not here right now just to overthrow the Romans and set up a new government. He's here to set up a new government in the hearts of men and women. So he sharpens up his teaching, and his teaching now becomes more and more about the kingdom of God is about me, Jesus. Who do you think I am? And he starts saying, you know, I've given you bread, but the true bread of life is to believe on the one that God sent down from heaven. And if you want eternal life, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he's basically saying, Life isn't in this physical bread I can give you. Life is in a relationship with me. I'm the big deal, Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want this life, you come to follow me. And people don't like this. Because what they want, what you and I want, is comfort and problems fixed. Get rid of the Romans. We don't like that government. Vote them out. Get rid of them. Give us back power and fill our bellies. That's what we want. And Jesus is here for more than that. He's here to transform you and I. The real problem isn't the Romans. The real problem is the same with the Romans as it is with you. Your heart's broken. And you want to get a broken heart and a distorted heart healed, you come to me. And he was now teaching that the work of God was to believe on him and making himself equal to God. And the Bible starts to say this, Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining, so he said to them, Does this offend you? Then what will you think if you see the Son of Man ascend to heaven again? The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But some of you do not believe me. For Jesus knew from the beginning which ones didn't believe, and he knew who would betray him. Then he said, that is why I said, people can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, Are you also going to leave? Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. So there are these disappointing circumstances and people go away because they're looking to Jesus to be a problem solver. 
But Peter, bless him, is starting, starting to get an inkling that there's something more here, that there's something more in Jesus that he needs, that there's life in Jesus, that, and, and he wants to follow that, and he recognizes it's not about what Jesus does, but who Jesus is. And I have to tell you, those words... Lord, to whom would we go? Ring through my life more and more. And I'm sure for more of you, the longer you walk with Jesus, the more precious those words come to you. Because if you follow God long enough, the world is going to be disappointing and he's not going to solve your problems. And you're going to come to the place where you're going to say, wow, this isn't working out quite like how I expected it. Where else would I go? Uh, when I was at Bethany, we started an Alpha program, and it ran, uh, and it still uh, putzes along now, 13 years later, and it's one of the most wonderful things I've ever seen, because you actually see people come in, scared the first couple of nights. After about three weeks, they start to make friends, and they recognize, wow, these people listen to me, and they get their belly filled with good German Baptist cooking, which, you know, has blessings of its own. And even for those of us who aren't German Baptists in background, there's nothing like Roladen and Kuchen and all those things to help you become a fully-fledged husband. But they come in and they're transformed. And we had some absolutely wonderful servants of Christ in the kitchen. Because, you know, there are quiet ways you serve Jesus. Uh, Standing up in front and preaching, that's only one way. And sometimes the most transformative way is those quiet behind the scenes making the house of God and the houses of God and the places where we gather hospitable. And so we had wonderful women in the kitchen. And three of them got cancer and died. Two of them were leaders of the kitchen staff, a wonderful woman named A.J. Baker, And we watched AJ, and those of you who've lived long enough, you know how cancer goes. Sometimes it's only a catch-up game. It's the flu that won't go away, and then there's the cough, and then you go on, you get the diagnosis, and you're kind of behind eight balls, so they're going to start this, but no, it's gone too far. Then we'll do the radiation. No, it's got too far. No, we're going to... And it's catch-up and catch-up, and you've not caught your breath, and it's not a fight, and suddenly, four months later, you're standing at the graveside, and you're weeping, and you're saying, God, through this woman... Through her humble efforts and her hands, people have come into your eternal kingdom. Why? Why have you taken her? This doesn't make sense. We prayed and we prayed and we believed. And that happened three times in a row in the kitchen. And you just say, why, Lord? Because you pray for people. And some are healed, and we always pray for healing because God commands us to. And some are healed, but some aren't. But where else are you going to go? Where else am I going to go? Yes, AJ's gone, and she's with Jesus, and I'm disappointed, God, that you didn't heal. And let's be honest, we're disappointed when he doesn't heal. And he knows that, so we might as well tell him. He reads our minds. He calls Job his friend because Job actually was honest enough to say, God, I can't stand this. Why don't you change it? You know I love you and my life has fallen apart, and where else can we go? And you pray for the marriages, and you see them, and they... They always come to pastors about six months. I shouldn't say always, but often six months too late. And so you start working with them. You go off to a counselor and you're praying and you're praying and you see the kids are brokenhearted and they're both Christians and they both love Jesus and it just breaks. If I can say anything to you guys, don't be afraid. Get counseling early. 
Call it a marriage coach. Don't care what you do. Work on it. <laughs> but you pray and you pray and you pour your heart into things and then it breaks and it falls apart. Or you're serving God and you're tithing and one day the boss walks in and you just know that look. And at the end of the day, you're walking home unemployed. Jesus, I served you. I loved you. What's, what's going on here? I gave you my life. Or this. And you know, if you're my age, 50 or above, you see people in churches, and they, they used to be serving at the front of the church, and they were doing everything, and they gave their heart and gave their heart and poured their life into it, and then their church fought and split. And you know, churches are like families, honestly. They really are. And a church fight breaks your heart. And so they can't take themselves away from Jesus, but they sit further back, and they don't do as much as they used to because they just... They're so disappointed. And you know that's the truth? And we have the New Testament because church fights are as old as, as the faith that Jesus gave us. You know, God works with broken people. And all of us have our part in that. And so you follow Jesus and you give your life to him and, and people die and churches fight and marriages come unglued. And so the question is, where else would we go? So I followed you, Lord, and sometimes life is broken. And honest men and women like Job don't hide these questions from God because he knows what you feel. And God loves honesty. When what you take in your heart, you speak out to him. He knows it already. And he enters into loving, fatherly dialogue with you. And he says, yeah, I know. I know. And, and some of the answers I won't give you now. And I can't. But I will never leave you, and I'll never forsake you. And so the question for me sometimes becomes, do I want... I've tasted Jesus Christ. I've tasted the pleasure of his friendship, of his Holy Spirit in me. Do you want life's problems and life's disappointments with Jesus Christ or without him? Well, where else would we go? Amen? In the middle of the true, lousy, crummy disappointments of life, God is there. And he's not answering every question, but he's saying, Dear child, I'm here. You can let out your sorrow and disappointment with me, and I will draw close. And I will not abandon you. And I'll stick with you to the end. This world is broken, and there's a reason I came in the flesh and took on the sorrows you did. Jesus probably bid farewell to his earthly father, Joseph, who he would have loved like any son loved a good father. Probably bid farewell to him in his teens or early 20s and became the young man responsible for his family. Jesus knows brokenheartedness, and he enters into our brokenheartedness too. Where else would we go? Five truths about Jesus. He loves you. He likes you. Really, he does. He likes you, like a friend likes you. Not only is he your Lord and magnificent Savior beyond imaginings pure, but he likes people. And he loves broken people so much he became a human being and dwelt amongst us. 
He weeps at our sorrows and enters into them with us. He carries our burdens and gives us a life that we can actually shoulder because he shoulders it with us. And he speaks forgiveness in unlimited measure. And he's not afraid of our disappointment. Where else would we go? And if you see this in Jesus Christ, this is who God is. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? This is our God. May this be, this is the good news. This is the gospel that God became a human being, dwelt amongst us, took his sins upon, our sins upon himself, and paid the price for them, and sent us out to speak this news about the character of God. Yes? Is this good news? Let me pray for you, Ebenezer. Lord, I often, in my emotions, don't believe these things. And as I preach and speak them, I ask you to take them back to my heart again and remind me of how infinite grace is, how infinite your affection for me is, how little I can bring to you to earn any of it that it just comes unbidden because you love me as a father loves their child. I pray for Ebenezer that out of this body of your children would flow this message of how great, how kind, how loving, how unbelievably huge and kind you are and that it would transform this corner of Vancouver that new and unique ways of expressing this love would bubble out and affect the people around here, for you love the lost people of the lower mainland. Thank you. We love you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's stand at this time and we will uh, finish.